You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian here with Paul, and uh, we got another good show lined up for you guys talking about uh, education, talking about colleges and all these types of things, because Paul is our resident academic. He's our resident ivory tower philosopher, detached from the difficulties of the blue collar man who lives in the real world, looking down upon everyone with a scowling face. Paul, say hello to everyone. I don't live in an ivory tower, though. Baylor is like so far removed. Baylor is like in Texas. It's so far removed from all the elite. Like you can't get any more nitty gritty and down to earth than Texas. That's true. You're I mean, you want a homestead. So you're like a salt of the earth, rugged philosopher. I'm a crunchy philosopher. You're a crunchy philosopher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's that, that, that should be your blog, your blog uh, title. Crunchy philosophy. Yeah. I like, I, I've got chickens and hogs and hot takes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How is your homestead uh, life going? How is your or preparation for homesteading? Cause right now you're uh it's all theoretical, my man. Yeah. It's all like in my head. And it will all, and it will stay theoretical. <laughs> That's how I'm a crunchy philosopher. I homestead in my head. That's what I do. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I just can't imagine you like raising all these chickens and like, I thought you were going to say, I can't imagine you raising all these children. Yeah. I was like, that's pessimistic. Well, maybe you'll have your children. They'll be the ones who uh, raise all your chickens. And then we can live together and have all of our families on the same property. Yeah, your commune. I know. I feel like every, again, keep bringing up cults, but every cult starts this way. You know? Every good thing also starts this way. It's true. Hey, Jesus Jesus basically lived in a commune. Well. 12 dudes, uh, I mean, like nomadic. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Know. I don't I don't know about that. But uh, everybody, I mean, everybody lived around each other. So. So maybe we should just do that. We should just like yeah. shrink our cities and all live in the same area. Like, wouldn't that be fun? Like if we all like if if your family lived like a five minute walk or just like next. Would you make like from- a homeschool co-op? Is that how the kids would be educated? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'd be happy to all take right. the lead on that. Okay. All right. Let's do all right. it. Well, that's a good transition because uh, <laughs> you wanted to talk about, and I think this is going to be an interesting conversation, one that I don't know super, I don't know a ton about, but uh, the New York Times <clears throat> just released a like kind of online interactive database kind of thing, or I guess it's, it's like a, I don't know if database is the right word. You you can calculate, you can build your own. Yeah. You can build your own college rankings. So every year they've got college rankings that that kind of show the who's who of colleges. And that influences a lot of what people aspire to in terms of higher education. So it's a very influential list. And, uh, but this is interesting where it actually puts it in the hands of the people to create their own list based upon their own metrics and things that they really want out of higher education which uh, what interested you about this particular tool that they have online? And we'll have the link to it in our show notes. But you have this interactive tool where you can uh, what, what, what matters most to you when choosing a college. And you can basically fill in size, location, whether it's public, uh, in a city, in a suburb, uh, median income, party scene, <laughs> diversity, <laughs> campus safety, athletics, all that kind of stuff. Um, what, uh, struck you about this tool? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's cool because, um, this is the first time anyone's ever had an idea like this, where let's say that you're the kind of person who wants to go to a college that emphasizes, um, 
engineering or something, and you're not really concerned about prestige, the U.S. World News ranking and all the typical rankings don't really care about like those tailored preferences. And so this is a nice attempt to like give people what they want. And so um, I think it'll it will help in the long run. Um, it won't like it won't give people a narrow view of what counts as a like top education. So you don't have to all go to the same sorts of places. It's not going to mean that NYU is the dream school for everyone or Harvard is the number one across the board. And so you can kind of like tailor based on your um, your preferences. Like, let's say, actually, no, I I want to go somewhere that has um, a smaller student population because I think that's valuable. I think I'll get to know my peers better. Um, this is great. And so it'll it'll rank a smaller school like a liberal arts college more highly than an Ivy League school, if, if that's what you prefer. So I think that's a step at least in the right direction to give people that sort of um, like autonomy and, and uh, control over the data that's already out there and not just have a standardized ranking. So that's at least on the face of it, one good thing. Um, but like the internet is kind of a buzz and maybe this is just my corner of the internet, all the academics on the Twitter sphere and Facebook. Um, it's just interesting the kinds of um, metrics that they're looking at. And the ones that you have control over don't seem to be like super important. So like your athletics, your party scene, your campus safety, your economic diversity, I guess high earnings. Um, people do care about that sort of Spoken stuff. Spoken like a true ivory tower philosopher. You don't care about the party scene or the football. I mean, it's just, okay, go ahead. If it were up to me, I'd get rid of all athletic sport, like college sports. It's just terrible. Okay. <laughs> I know we talked about this before. Um, and it just got me thinking what, and from my perspective, and if I had kids someday, what would I want them to get in a college education? What would I tell them? Like, how would I tell them to rank even the metrics, like high earnings, safety, economic diversity? And I just realized that like the stuff that I would tell them to look for were not even represented on this list. I'd care that they had like, good people around them and that they were reading good things and that they were studying like the history of the Western intellectual tradition, like all that sort of stuff. So it's about like the content of the education, not so much just like, how is this going to serve me in my like career prospects? So I think maybe that's one way of like talking about this distinction. Is an education primarily about like career or is it about becoming a certain kind of person? And those aren't necessarily like non-overlapping. They're not mutually exclusive. But it is telling that our culture has these metrics that are just um, by their nature, like they incentivize caring about career and social status and more like sort of instrumentally useful things rather than thinking about education as the sort of thing that makes you into a certain kind of person. What are the what are the rankings now? The official rankings. What are they based off? Just basically like graduates, what they end up doing, funding. Like what, what's the what are the like metrics now? The the profile of the the academic faculty. Like how good are the faculty? Um, what's your acceptance rate? What's your graduation rate? How long does it take for students to graduate? How many of them get jobs? How big are the class sizes? So that. Fairly standard sorts of things, which are good things to aim at. But well, I, is that, yeah. 
but, but you, yeah, is, is that the measure of a good education? But I mean, I, people need the connections and the jobs. Like you need to have a career. I mean, wh- like, I mean, that, that's the classic thing. People go get these degrees and there's no market for them. And so they end up wasting all this money. You know, I mean, like, was there a point in which higher education was not attached to the, the attainment of a career? I mean, like, wh- like how, how would you respond to somebody saying like, yeah, but you got to make money. You got to pay back the loans. You got to, you know, you can go to liberal arts school and become a better person, but then you're not going to be able to afford rent. Yeah. I mean, this is always the tension. So it does, it tells us something about what we care about as a society when those are the sorts of concerns that are like most pressing. Like the fact that you have to take out loans to study and go to college is already like a kind of like that's that's part of the world that we live in. And so it's non-ideal. And so it drives people to think about their education in like monetary terms, because I have to think about what's going to give me enough money to pay back these loans. And there's all these added anxieties that you could ask, well, would those exist in a sort of ideal ideal world, ideal society? Um, and maybe it is tragic that we have to like ask these kinds of questions. How am I going to pay back the loans? What's going to actually give me stability in my life? And I'm not saying that education is not supposed to give you um, like solid career prospects, but is that what an education is primarily for? And are there ways that we can strive for career in ways that actually undermine our education? Um, or is, is it the case that like you can study, you can like, if you're, if you're a good person and if you've been formed in the right kinds of ways, then does that sort of enable you to do lots of different jobs? And I think there's something to that, especially in our, um, we live in a world where there are jobs that exist now that just didn't exist in their job titles, even 10 or 15 years ago. And the skill set for those jobs is not necessarily like super specialized. Um, maybe in the age of AI, we need more generalists rather than specialists. I don't know. But it just, it made me think about like, it's what would I want my kids to like want in a college education? And I think like, yeah, I, I wouldn't want them to just go off and pursue their dreams. Like just go study whatever you're passionate about, even if that's just like, a four-year degree in dance or something, but (laughs) (laughs) I know that was harsh. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe what I'm thinking of is I spent a a couple years at a liberal arts college. And so that sort of like tainted my thinking or improved my thinking. But I, I now think that that's something of an ideal, like that students can learn in small communities and, study philosophy and English and read great books, even if that's not what they're going to end up doing ultimately, even if you're going to be a business person or a doctor, that you have this foundation in like the best of like the Western intellectual resources that we have. And you've read Plato, you've read Homer, you've read Charles Dickens, like your your imagination and your like your intuitions, your moral sense has been formed in this really positive way so that whatever you do later, um, is going to be valuable. So I don't think they necessarily need to be pitted against one another, but those are the kinds of questions that I would have my kids ask, like, is this institution going to give me that kind of like background and, and, and foundation? Are they going to care about me as a person and try to form me as a person rather than just give me the certificate so I can go and do this thing? I guess those are sort of two different approaches there, but. I think that goes with the value system. I mean, like, 
you were saying you want them to go to a school to learn good things. I mean, who determines what the good things they're supposed to learn should be? Mm. You said Western tradition. That could be seen as a very, you know, maybe even bigoted thing to say. Um, I know. But yeah. yeah, if you if you were to say, like, I want you to learn the Western tradition of philosophy and ethics, and all these things. Why is that the ideal setting? I mean, because you're saying like, maybe we could put it like this. Oftentimes education is like you want to see all the different viewpoints, you know, and then make your own decision mm-hmm. versus. And I think this is something that maybe you're touching on going into a good tradition and learning it. You know, like this is actually the way to think about things versus here's a bunch of different ways and you pick the one that kind of you sympathize with. Hmm. Is that fair? And and how would you convince somebody who's grown up in the, you know, there's all these different ways of looking at it and you just look at them all and you pick the best one versus we're going to school you in the Western thought of philosophy and all these things because we think that this is a good way to view the world. Yeah, um, I think so. There's sometimes what's thought of as like the idea that you can teach neutrally, like which is what you were getting at, where you just like set up all the options for students and then you let them pick. The problem with that conception is that you don't actually end up teaching neutrally. Like, and we've talked about this before. We may have even said this on the podcast. Even in setting things up like that, you're already communicating something to your students. You're communicating that all these options should equally be considered. Hmm. If I'm, if I'm teaching That's already ethics, a perspective, right? That's right. a perspective you're put, you're bringing to them. Yeah. Yeah. And you can even say that like, I'm adding pressure to you as a student by putting you in this position. Right. I'm, I'm telling you here are 10 different ways to think about this issue. And I'm not telling you which of these is the right way or which of these is even better than the other four or five. I've just given them to you. Um, and you think like, okay, as a student, what you've told me is, all of these are to be equally considered. And now I have the pressure of picking. And sometimes that's legitimate. Like you can teach, a, like there are topics where we just don't know. Like it actually is the case that we don't know which of these is the best. And this could be the case in like a biblical studies class. Like, I don't know, there might be some passage. There are four ways to read this. And like, there's no consensus. We have no idea. Um, and that's fair. Mm-hmm. Like the pressure on the student is, okay, well, this is genuinely an open question. Go and do some work. But like, imagine if you were like in a science class and your teacher taught you like, here's the, like, here's the, here's the, the view that says the world is spherical. And here's the view that the world is flat. Now, like go and decide. There's something wrong about that kind of picture. And what's wrong about that picture is we know that one of those is better than the other. And so like part of education is not just giving students all the options. You can give students options, but you can also teach in a way that highlights some options as better than others. And I think that people get hesitant when they think about using that method in theology or philosophy or ethics. They say, well, no, we can't. Ethics is not like science. Ethics is like each individual determines for themselves or even theologies like that. And I just think like, that's not the case. Like that is just not the case. You, you, you can't in good faith say, we don't know that, you know, certain things are right and wrong or that certain theological positions, if you're at a seminary or in a Bible college, certain things just are better ways of thinking about the world than others. And that's not, 
it doesn't in any way undermine student autonomy. If anything, like it actually like supports student autonomy because it frees students up from pressure to think that I have to wade through all this on my own and come to a decision on my own, right? This is the importance of being in a good tradition. And now this is going to be where people will disagree, like what counts as a good tradition? Where am I going to go that's actually truth preserving, at least on the whole? I don't want to go somewhere that's going to like be totally cut off and never expose me to things that I disagree with. But I want the people who are teaching me to have a sense of what's actually good and bad, what's right and wrong, in order to free me to think about these issues in a sort of safe kind of way. And I think that that's, that's an ideal. I don't know many institutions that do that. Um, places do that to different extents, but I think that's something that we should hope for, at least in how we expose ourselves to different ideas. You want to strike this balance where you don't want to cut yourself off from wrong ideas completely, but you also don't want to, G.K. Chesterton famously said, I don't want my mind to be so open that my brain falls out. I don't right. want to just be like totally relativist and say there's no truth anywhere and I'm just going to treat all the options equally. That's that's equally bad. You want, I guess the the, the ideal is something like find somewhere that's generally truth preserving and within that context, explore different options, right? But you have some base. And that doesn't mean you have to go to a real religious school, but somewhere where you're reading texts that have withstood the test of time. Maybe that's one way of putting it, right? And maybe so that's the look, importance of the old books. When you look at this self-ranking system, you look at these factors, it's it's almost like you, if you're a 17-year-old and you're clicking through these, are you going to – you're not going to have – I mean – it seems like most 17-year-olds would, would not be thinking what's going to form me into a better person or what they would think is something that is not traditionally what people have seen as forming you into a better person. I mean, yeah. how would, so how would you answer that specifically for your kids? What, what kind of school would you want them to look for? Like I want them to read, you said Plato or – I mean like what, what would you want the metrics to be? Um. <clears throat> Like deep familiarity with old, good books. Like, what are we talking about? Like, what would be... You're talking to a philosopher here, so... Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the the philosophical tradition. And like the tradition that is sitting on top of that. Like, we have in the Greek ancient tradition, Plato and Aristotle. And then from that, like, begins this 2,500-year conversation that takes place, like... Not just, it's not just, it's not just a Western conversation. Like you do have interlocutors in Asia and um, there are, you know, Buddhist texts that are worth reading. There are Confucian texts that are worth reading. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's going on, but the sorts of questions that are being raised by Plato and Aristotle and the way that those conversations are taken up subsequently by Christians, for example, in Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and how that like tradition is exemplified in music, for example, and then in poetry and in literature and in history. And you just, you want students to get like a good grasp of reality and realize that where we are in 2023 is not like an island, right? We, we, we are part of a connected whole that begins way before we did. And so even the ways that we think about the world are conceptions of human rights and value and science and all this sort of stuff. We didn't like wake up one day and have all this. Like this is the tail end of a conversation that I'm at now, but that has been going on without me for 2,500 years. 
And I want my kids and my students to be able to understand that sort of like historical embeddedness that they're not just atomic individuals, like they are part of something much bigger than themselves. And so looking at history to be able to correct for current blind spots, for example, um, that we, we shouldn't privilege necessarily our own position in time, but that there are are things that we may have wrong. And so we look at history and we see how people have thought about other issues and see if maybe they could shed light on where we're not doing so well and vice versa. There are things that we're better at that the historical tradition is not as good at. And so weaving together that tapestry is important. Well, even getting people to want those things requires education before they end up making that decision for college. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other question. I yeah. think there's a lot of debate about public school, private school and stuff. But I, I wonder, like, you talk about Christians. What are Christians going to um, – their, their choice of college, that can often be a very influential thing. Do you think that Christians should only go to Christian schools? What What are the – Wait, like how, how would you treat your own kids with that? Like, would you want them to go to a Christian liberal arts school? Would you want them to I mean, go to not, a large yeah. public, I, public not, uh, not, university? Not necessarily. I don't, I don't think you have to go to a Christian school. I, I didn't go to a Christian undergrad. You didn't go to a Christian undergrad. Um, <clears throat> I had a great education. Well, I, I wasn't a Christian though when I went to that's undergrad. True. Though. So, that's true. But you were and you yeah. decided to, uh, to rebel and go to I did. NYU. <laughs> The bastion of Christian conservative That's right. thought. And, and there, there's a lot of, there, in, in some ways I wouldn't be, I mean, it's, I think it's trivially true. I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't do that because experiences form who you are. Sure. Um, and so my, my love of philosophy, my, even my taking my faith seriously was like propelled by being in, it wasn't a hostile environment. It was just, it was a challenging environment. I, I learned a lot and I was exposed to people who disagreed with me and, and um, worldviews that were not my own, but I, I had a solid bedrock of, of, of Christian faith. And I grew up in a home um, where that was idealized and practiced and really like sort of um, cultivated in me. And so I think, I think that like sort of pre-college preparation does do a lot for um, students as they enter college. And so I'd, I'd be much more comfortable sending my kids to a secular institution if they had that sort of pre-college um, catechesis, if you will, that takes place in the home and in the church and in this broader, like the education that they have up until 18. And I think there's an element of, yeah, trusting that God is going to do more for your kids than you, than you can. Um, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong about exposing your kids to, um, Difficult ideas and difficult worldviews and things that are um, things that you disagree with in these later stages. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of a kind of like evangelicals have this skepticism to the secular university and especially like the philosophy class that's going to like make your kids lose their faith. And I think if your kid loses their faith in an intro to philosophy class, then whatever faith was there was probably not super deep to begin with. Um, and so... Maybe but that's there are a little some bit ideas take. that you just don't want people to be exposed. I think a lot of parents, it's not so much they think like it's going to be God's not dead and they're going to have an atheist professor that's going to make them doubt God. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more a progressive agenda that has seemed to be in a lot of universities that's becoming more and more hostile. It's not about just a free exchange of ideas. It's the pressing of an ideology. I think that's what parents are afraid of. And on the collegiate level, I think it's more and more difficult to deal with. Um, and do you want to, you know, are, are, are most kids going to be formed enough to be able to withstand that? 
I don't yeah. know. Even even in the I, most well catechized Christian families, you know. And I'm not sure what it's going to look like in ten years. And it's sort of you you take it as it comes, and it's a it's a case by case basis. Um, but yeah, I, I I'd say in principle, there's nothing wrong with exposing yourself to the best ideas. And there, if there are places that you can do so with people who are also in a sort of good faith exchange, like I don't agree with you, you don't agree with me, but we're both committed to truth as the ultimate sort of value. And so at least you've got people who are intellectually honest, who care about open exchange of ideas, good free speech sort of um, laws and policies and that sort of thing. Like, I think that sort of institution is one that I would condone and one that I would be okay with my kids going to, even if it's not Christian, even if it doesn't align with all my values directly. Um, I think that you are, you're formed, you're formed in your like sort of zero to 18 period in a different way than you are as an adult. And there's a certain kind of like taking your views and making them your own that takes place in college. And that's something that you can't, um, you can't substitute. I, I can't give that to you. There's a kind of like, you have to go through the fire for yourself. And um, if your faith is real, if your values are actually part of your character, then that's going to be, it's going to be shown for what it is in, in actual testing circumstances. Um, and you can't protect your kids from that forever, right? There's, you don't want to like keep your kids in a bubble. Um, but it is on a case by case basis. We don't want to just sort of license every single institution and say, yeah, I, I agree that there are some nefarious ideologies and not all education is actually aiming at truth, but, but you can get sort of like strange bedfellow situations in conservatives and people who disagree with you. Um, even if there's a sort of shared commitment to pursuing truth, and I well, think it's important. In your world of philosophy, though, that's an interesting world, but everybody comes there with kind of already having to think of a methodology to think through things. And it's an environment in which ideas really are tested. Whereas something else, I mean, like, I don't know, gender studies or like, I mean, these, you know, all these majors that like, it's, it's not really about sharpening ideas and testing them. It's really just about kind of creating or, or following a particular narrative or perspective. So maybe in idealizing it, you'd have people take basic philosophy or, or have the ethic. I, that's the thing. You need to have a tradition in order for people to have a common language and methodology to actually disagree versus now it's projected as a power play. Like even when you say mm. Western, the, it's like what you mean is the people who won all the wars get to dictate what truth is. And that's a power play thing. And then that's not a commitment to their actual truths that, stand the test of time that you can work from a tradition. Um, what was it like for you dealing with in your philosophy department, people who aren't, aren't Christians? Um, maybe, maybe I'd ask it this way. Why does it seem it, 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 how would you compare the polarization of people, of people outside of philosophy in terms of disagreeing ideas versus within philosophy? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. What was the environment like? What was the comparison? I think, like you said, because of philosophy's commitment to, we're all going to, we're basically cutting our teeth on arguments. Like that's, <clears throat> that's what's going on in philosophy departments. It, it is much more conducive to people trying to find truth, or at least they care about, like, it's not, it's not bad to argue with people. 
in the way that it sometimes is in some of these other areas that you mentioned and um, the power plays and the like, we don't want to, we don't want to make people feel bad or I, in philosophy, it's just, it's not that world. Um, and so when I hear people talk about um, those sorts of woes, I'm, I'm grateful for not inhabiting those circles and something about philosophy, it's, it, it's connection to this greater conversation. And it's like, Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman heritage and origin story that contributes to its um, maybe its its resilience to these sorts of contemporary um, negative ideas. So yeah, f- philosophy I think is immune in a lot of ways to some of these worries because you can't say something in a philosophy department <clears throat> or in a philosophy conference and not expect to be challenged. And so that that sort of environment where. Um, you have to, you really have to be able to back up what you say and provide compelling reasons for why you believe certain things, even if people disagree. Right? This is not saying that we're a monolithic, uniform discipline, but there's a shared understanding that we can disagree, and if I make a claim, I'm going to have to show support for what I for what I believe in a way that should be compelling, even to people who disagree with me. That sort of healthy understanding is at least um, still intact in the discipline. And so philosophy, I mean, this is just like a sort of shameless plug for philosophy. Like philosophy is like, at least in the, in the humanities, one discipline that is more resilient to uh, perhaps progressive encroaching ideologies because of its commitment to open exchange, argumentation, and the value of truth, right? Like that. And I just think that that's a wonderful thing. So, yeah. It also provides an environment, like you were saying, where people know that's what they're entering into. I think a lot of the emotional stuff and the tension when you have just people in ordinary life disagreeing is it's it's like a, a sneak attack. You you're you're having a meal with someone, they say something you're like, wait, what? And then it gets awkward. Or people aren't versed enough in the methodology of thinking correctly to even be able to have healthy disagreement. Or healthy disagreement is just like, well, let's just, you know, um you nuance things to death so you're not actually in conflict. I think you actually need an environment where you're there to hash out these ideas. Like even just setting that precedent, you know, using, you know, coin, you know, a, a, an actual safe space, a place where you're like, we're going to actually disagree. We're going to hold each other to a standard of talk, hold each other to back up what we're saying. Whereas if you're just talking to somebody on the street, it's like you don't have that. And I think, um, you, you, I think we're missing those environments hmm. that maybe the university used to provide in which if you would have the environments in which to have these conversations and you'd be taught how to have these conversations. Um, because I don't think the answer is let's just all get along. You know, I think you really do want to contend with ideas. That is something impressive I've, I've seen with you and other philosophy people I'm around where not only do you have strong opinions and you back them up, you also understand the opposing side's good points and that strengthens your opinions. Hmm. Um, not to say that it's perfect or there aren't, aren't ideologies in, in sure. philosophy and all that stuff, but I do seem to, even when I talk to you or other, again, people in philosophy, there seems to be a sense of like, you know, you're, you're battle tested and you know what you are sure about and you maybe more importantly know what, you, what there's more discussion to be had about. Um, but, you know, I don't know how that translates outward 
I don't know if it's even possible now. I, I, and I don't even know, was there a time, was there this golden age where education was about forming people? I'm probably ignorant on this. I'm sure there was. But I mean, like, what, what shifted? What, what happened for it to become what it is now, in your um, opinion? <clears throat> I mean, part of the problem is there was a time where university was like actually an elite um, institution. And so only like the smartest and best could go there for an education. And your education was you'd study the classics, you'd study Latin, you'd study Greek. Um, and so in the I think this was in the sort of like 40s, 50s, 60s, there was a kind of like uh, commodification of the university. And so it's, it wasn't just this elite thing, but everyone, everyone goes to college, everyone goes and gets a degree. Um, and in doing so, the shape of a college education changed to accommodate more people, right? Because not everyone is the best and the brightest. Not everyone's going to do Latin and Greek. And so you get lots of new disciplines emerging, lots of new universities. And there's a emphasis on like the instrumental value of this. Okay, well, how can we, how can we make money with this? And how can we incentivize the kinds of money that people can get like using what we're offering? And so you get this like much more instrumental value. Um, that's added to education, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean you get this like proliferation of degrees. Like everyone has college yeah. education now. And so does it actually mean anything if you're college educated? Um, not really. Like it, it's so cheap, right? Is now it everyone forming needs master's you? degrees. Yeah. And the idea of moral formation, you want to be formed into a moral citizen, citizen of society. But I mean, if it's just for elites, don't you want everybody to have access to that moral formation? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not saying that we're like the the idea is to go back to some golden age, but like it's I think at like book one of the abolition of man, which we talked a lot about, where Lewis says that a good education should like irrigate the deserts, like basically like taking student hearts that are like dry and not sensitive to the stuff that they should be sensitive to and helping them be sensitive to it. He's talking about like cultivating a moral sense. And I think that 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 should be like the primary value of an education. Um, is that an ideal? Is it too lofty? Perhaps, but like, that's at least what we should be striving towards. I want, I want my students to be good people so that I can trust them when they're doctors and lawyers and business people and marketers and pastors. Like if you have a, a, a bedrock of citizens that is well formed, then you can trust them to do like difficult tasks and, and exercise prudence and wisdom in the later stages of life. What do you think about that in relation to... <clears throat> That in relation to the the with with Christianity's influence over society, because you say I want to be a good person. Well, then that nobody can agree on what that is. You know, mm -hmm. if someone could say the good person is when someone who's totally self expressive in all of their desires and all these types of things, or creates their own life, autonomous, whatever. I mean, in many ways, I wonder which one is it. Is it is it the universities have switched and that's affected culture? Culture switched and maybe it's a thing both. about both. But I mean. What you're saying right now, I mean, it sounds good to, if you're a Christian and, you know, if you appreciate a particular worldview, or even if you're versed in the Western tradition, but today, that's not what they think about in terms of what a good person is. So, I, I don't know. I mean, like, if you're going to incentivize people going to university, they're going to want, they're not going to value that. And I guess that's coming full circle back to what this, mm -hmm. what's so fascinating about how what people are looking for in education has changed based upon, I mean, I can even read through it. It says... Priorities, low sticker price, campus safety, academic <laughs> profile, high earnings, economic mm -hmm. mobility, low net price, athletics, racial diversity, economic diversity, party scene. And 
you know, not that these are necessarily all equally unimportant or whatever, but <laughs> again, it's, it's a very pragmatic kind of vision of what college ought to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think maybe the most dangerous thing is it perpetuates, you know, a, a devaluing of what a good education is meant to do. I mean, I think even now you think a good education, again, it's to be open-minded and then it's also to provide a, for a career. Now, are those things in themselves bad? No, but I think it's become such a vice grip that even saying you want to educate people to know the right things to think. Uh, and, and well, maybe, I mean, maybe even looking at it on the flip side, that's already happening. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is what's happening. It's just they're, they're presenting the right things to think as they're presenting the wrong things to think as the right things to think. <laughs> yes. Right. And, uh, and again, <laughs> even if you say, here's nine different ways to view the world, pick mm-hmm. one. We're so open minded. Well, no, you're, you're presenting a perspective that all nine right. of these views are equally valid. You are still telling people what to think. And so yeah. you can't avoid that. And um, I don't know. I mean, like, I know you love small liberal arts colleges, probably for that reason, the small class size, the ability to teach people in the Western tradition, all these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think I really, I mean, the, the universities came out of the Western tradition. Yeah. Right. And so mm-hmm. we should expect that to be something powerful. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't, do, you, do you feel optimistic or I mean, what's your outlook after reading this New York Times stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic in a sense. And, and here's where I, when, when people hear the term Western and there's sort of like a, you know, they, their red flags go up. This is, you know, bigoted, this is whatever. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily viewed that way. It doesn't have to be. So it's the sort of thing where even like conservatives and liberals can come around this common core and say, we, we've been developed and shaped by this history. Like, let's just make sense of it. Let's enter this conversation. And the conversation is one that even self-critiques. Like, not everyone. Like, Augustine doesn't agree with Aquinas, and Aquinas doesn't always agree with Calvin, and, and Dickens doesn't agree with Homer. And it's not it's not a unified voice, but it is a conversation. So it's not like you're even just telling people one singular unified voice has pronounced from on high, this is the one truth. But at least here are ways of thinking about the world that have withstood the test of time. And that withstanding the test of time is important. Ideas don't withstand the test of time just if they're like obviously silly or obviously ridiculous. That means there's there's something to be wrestled with here. Even the people that we disagree with, like David Hume, miracles are impossible. We should all be skeptics. Like, is he right? No. Like, is there a lot that's unchristian about the way that he thinks? Yes. But his views have persisted for 300 years because his challenges are worth taking seriously. How do we think about regularity in nature? How do we think about the rationality of believing testimony about miracles? Like these are serious challenges. And so it's not even that we're pronouncing with one voice, this is what's to be believed, but these ideas are worth taking seriously. And there's a great book that was written recently by by a liberal at Columbia University, Roosevelt Montas, who writes, uh, it's called Rescuing Socrates. He writes from a liberal perspective why we shouldn't get rid of great books and why we shouldn't get rid of this great text tradition because he talks about his own journey like this is how he encountered philosophy through reading augustine through reading the confessions even though he didn't agree with it he was like here's someone who's like introspective who's smarter than i am who believes all the stuff that i don't agree with like how how can you do that how do you make sense of that and i think it's important for students to do that um and so this is why i don't think i don't think 
the Western tradition or the great text tradition is uniquely Christian or conservative, but it is a tradition that is informed where we are and has given us the conceptual tools that we've been handed. And so our job is to sit down with it and think through it and ask the questions of, okay, to what extent is this good? To what extent we can we revise? Um, but that's important. And it's not, it's not, it's not singularly conservative or liberal, right? Like that's, that's the point here to, to the liberals who think this is just colonial or imperialist. Like that's not the point that it's not a singular answer that's being given. And it's not a singular worldview that's being represented, but it is a 2,500 year tradition that we have to deal with. You're right. And I think it, it's, again, when people think about diversity of thought, they mean like, it's just like a way to say, play nice with everyone. Everybody's, it's like a participation trophy, you know, right? versus an actual exchange of ideas where you're testing them and you're saying, I think these are wrong and here's why, mm -hmm. right? And, and actually taking a position, taking a stance, you can't be fragile with that. And I think that that's what's going on. People, it has the air of sophistication to say, well, they're all right, or they're all saying the same thing, really. But the actually sophisticated ones are the ones who are like, they're actually wrong on this. These are incompatible. This is what I think about this. And, uh, you know, it, it really is challenging. And I mean, I think I've been sharpened just by talking with you and guys like, you know, our friend, you know, like Marshall and Emmanuel mm -hmm. and all these, and, and Guillaume and all that stuff where you guys are trained in the art of thinking. I think that's the thing, too. People assume that people are able to differentiate things and make logical conclusions and define things and, and make distinctions, you know, big on that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's, I think it's revealed a lot of things in my own life where I'm like, Oh man, I got to learn how to think a little better. But again, I think context for that. And hopefully this podcast helps people have a context. You can talk about what we talk about you can disagree with us. You can think we're crazy, whatever. But, um, you know, I think, People are hungry for that. They actually do have these questions and they want to be able to just voice what they're thinking, not just so they can be heard, but so that they can be tested. I really do think people are like, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me mm -hmm. if I'm crazy, if I'm not thinking about this. And if we're too fragile, be able to have space to, you know, not be freaked out by that. Uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to lose out. I, I think, I think uh, Jonathan hates coddling the American mind talks about this a lot. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and if, interestingly enough, he says that, most conservatives have a better understanding of liberal perspectives than vice versa. And I think maybe there's a lot of historical facts with that and the academic world being very more progressive. Mm -hmm. um, but there is something to that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the minority ends up having a better grasp of the majority's view because they're exposed to it more. Like yeah. if, if, if you find, like if you're a liberal Christian in a conservative Christian church, then it'll be, it'll be flipped because you're mm -hmm. the minority and you're constantly being exposed to people who are arguing the other side. So you automatically just by default have this like new level of sophistication and rigor because your ideas are constantly being challenged and you're constantly being exposed. And so in, in academia, it's flipped because conservatives are the minority. They're constantly getting arguments from the other side. And so they, there's a rigor there that you just, you don't expect on the other side because their side is the default. And so that that's where it ends up. And I think that's something that we should take advantage of, right? Like, um, but it is something to, uh, if you're on the other side, like intellectual honesty calls that you cultivate that same sort of disposition where you familiarize yourself 
with the other arguments on the other side and be willing to say, even though I don't agree with you, I understand that the best position for or the best argument for position is X, Y, and Z. So I know your view. I'm not right. just mischaracterizing that. And if we can get to that level or that spot as a society, we'd be so much better, right? And that's different from neutrality. Right. Being like, well, no one can really know. It's like, no, you I think things advance when you when people take a stance. Mm-hmm. They're willing to change their mind, but they have a mind to change. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, I think Chesterton saying, you know, an open mind is like an open mouth that exists only to close on something solid, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, maybe the best of education does that. And that's why you are where you are, Paul. You're the pioneer, the homesteading Trying. philosophy pioneer. That's what you're one of, one, one of those is true. Yeah. And the other yeah. two are philosophizing and pioneering. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Great conversation. We're going to post the, the link again to the New York Times little uh, interactive tool in our show notes. And uh, yeah, it's a great conversation, very important. And uh, we'd love to hear what you guys think. If you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great. We're also on Spotify. Make sure you follow us on That'll Preach Podcast on Instagram. You can send us a message uh, telling us what you think about our episodes. And uh, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Thank you guys for listening.